following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. We welcome you tonight to our service at Fellowship Bible Church. Let's turn our Bibles uh, this evening to 1 Chronicles 9. It's uh, a happy coincidence that we're in Ezekiel 9 and 1 Chronicles 9 today. We had that same thing happen last week, and we've gotten them synchronized here for the time being. Chapter 9, this is a fairly lengthy chapter, and it begins this way. So all Israel was recorded by genealogies, and indeed they were inscribed in the book of the kings of Israel. But Judah was carried away captive to Babylon because of their unfaithfulness. And the first inhabitants who dwelt in their possessions in their cities were Israelites, priests, Levites, and the Nethanim. Now in Jerusalem, the children of Judah dwelt, and some of the children of Benjamin, and of the children of Ephraim and Manasseh, Uthai, the son of Amihud, the son of Amri, the son of Imri, the son of Bani, of the descendants of Perez, the son of Judah, of the Shilonites, Asiah the firstborn and his sons, of the sons of Zerah, Jeul, and their brethren, 690. Of the sons of Benjamin, Salu, the son of Meshulam, the son of Hodaviah, the son of uh, Hesanua. Ibneah, the son of Jer, uh, Jer, 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 Jeroham, sorry. Uh, Elah, the son of Uzi, the son of Mikri. Meshulam, the son of Shephathiah, the son of Reuel, the son of Ibnijah or Ibnijah, perhaps, better, and their brethren, according to their generations, 956. All these men were heads of a father's house in their father's houses. Of the priests, Jediah, Jehoiarib, and Jachin. Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Meshulam, the son of Zadok, the son of Meriot, the son of Ahitub, the officer over the house of God. Adiah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Pashur, the son of Melchijah, Maasai, the son of Adiel, the son of Jazerah, the son of Meshulam, the son of Meshilameth, the son of Imir, and their brethren, heads of their fathers' houses, 1,760. They were very able men for the work of the service of the house of God. Boy, how we need that today. Very able men, many of them. The Lord has told us to pray that God would send forth laborers into his harvest, and we are certainly praying to that end. Of the Levites, Shemaiah, the son of Hashub, the son of Azrikam, the son of Hashabiah, the sons of Merari, Bakbakar, Heresh, Galal, and Mataniah, the son of Micah, the son of Zikri, the son of Asaph. Obadiah, ah, there he is again, brother. Uh, Obadiah, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Galal, the son of Jeduthun, and Berechiah, the son of Asa, the son of Elkanah, who lived in the villages of the Netophathites. And the gatekeepers were Shalom, Akuv, Talman, Ahiman, and their brethren. Shalom was the chief. Until then they had been gatekeepers for the camps of the children of Levi at the king's gate on the east. Shalom, the son of Korah, the son of Abiasaph, the son of Korah, and his brethren from his father's house, the Korahites, were in charge of the work of the service, gatekeepers of the tabernacle. Their fathers had been keepers of the entrance to the camp of the Lord. 
a lot of these jobs were inherited, you know, um, and, uh, according to the family line. So it's kind of interesting. The son would know just what his job was assigned to be by God uh, young, long years before he began uh, that job. He'd see his dad do it or his grandfather even. And Phineas, the son of Eleazar, had been the officer over them in time past. The Lord was with him. Zechariah, the son of uh, Meshelamiah, was keeper of the door of the tabernacle of meeting. All those chosen as gatekeepers were 212. They were recorded by their genealogy in their villages. David and Samuel the seer had appointed them to their trusted office. So they and their children were in charge of the gates of the house of the Lord, the house of the tabernacle by assignment. The gatekeepers were assigned to the four directions, the east, west, north, and south. And their brethren in their villages had come with them from time to time for seven days. For in this trusted office were four chief gatekeepers. They were Levites, and they had charge over the chambers and treasuries of the house of God. And they lodged all around the house of God because they had the responsibility, and they were in charge of opening it every morning. Now, this sounds like maybe it's trivial, but really you have to guard the holiness of the tabernacle and the surrounding areas. You have to keep it clean and operational. You have to make sure that it's open no matter what because the worship of Israel has to go on. This is no uh, small and unimportant task, and to have somebody assigned as a trustee, if you will, of this was important. Now, some of them were in charge of the serving vessels, for they brought them in and took them out by count. Some of them were appointed over the furnishings and over all the implements of the sanctuary and over the fine flour and the wine and the oil and the incense and the spices. And some of the sons of the priests made the ointment of the spices. Mattathiah of the Levites, the firstborn of Shalom the Korahite, had the trusted office over the things that were baked in the pans. And some of their brethren of the sons of the Kohathites were in charge of preparing the showbread for every Sabbath. These are the singers, heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites who lodged in the chambers and were free from other duties, for they were employed in that work day and night. These heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites were heads throughout their generations. They dwelt at Jerusalem. Jael, uh, the father of Gibeon, whose wife's name was Ma'akah, dwelt at Gibeon. His firstborn was Abdon, then Zur, Kish, Baal, Ner, Nadab, Gedor, Ahio, Zechariah, and Mikloth. And Mikloth begat Shemiam. They also dwelt alongside their relatives in Jerusalem with their brethren. Ner begat Kish, Kish begot Saul, and Saul begot Jonathan, Melchishua, Abinadab, and Eshbaal. The sons of Jonathan were Meribbaal, and Meribbaal begot Micah. The sons of Micah were Pathan, Melech, Teria, and Ahaz. And Ahaz begot Jarah, and Jarah begot Elameth, Asmaveth, and Zimri. And Zimri begot Moza. Moza begot Benaiah, Rephiah his son, Elisah his son, and Azel his son. And Azel had six sons whose names were these, Azrikam, Bukeru, Ishmael, Shearaiah, Obadiah, there he is again, Hanan, these were the sons of Azel. Obviously, there's more than one Obadiah in Scripture. Uh, servant of the Lord is that. What's, what a wonderful name that is. Yeah, what a wonderful name that is. Somebody uh, afterwards maybe tell us, is there an equivalent uh, name in, in uh, English that derives from other roots? That would be interesting to know. But uh, there's certainly not too many Obadiahs today in uh, English-speaking lands. So <clears throat> thus ends the reading of First Chronicles and the ninth chapter.
Tonight we have the privilege to look again at Matthew chapter 8 in our preaching time, and I'd like to invite you to turn there this evening, and we'll spend the balance of our time speaking of subjects drawn from this passage of Scripture, Matthew and the 8th chapter. We've looked at the first three verses already. We, uh, as we did that, we reviewed where we've been with the Lord, introduction of His public ministry uh, in chapter uh, 3, His uh, temptation, uh, successful passing of that, opening His ministry with the words like John the Baptist, to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Sermon on the Mount, His uh, opening salvo, if you will, into the, uh, into the scene, really, and one of the most sermons, uh, famous sermons ever preached. And we had the privilege to preach a series of sermons on the sermon. So uh, it's very, it was very interesting. We ended that uh, just a couple of weeks back, and we came to the point in which Jesus has finished. He's been observed by the multitudes to be a teacher of great authority. It makes perfect sense. Uh, they couldn't just, it just was too amazing. It was, a, it was a, a marvel to them. And when he came down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. Now we learn in John's gospel, for example, that that multitude was heavily thinned out uh, when the Lord gave the discourse uh, on the bread of life. And uh, many went back from walking after him and did not follow him anymore. We'll mention that. But great multitudes were at this time following him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And uh, the Lord Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Pardon me for a moment. And so this is what we looked at uh, last time. I think this was on Wednesday night when we uh, pondered this portion of Scripture. And notice again the desire for cleansing. He wanted to be clean. Notice the faith that he had. If you're willing, that's the only gating function. If you're willing, you can do it. That's, that's pretty good faith. Jesus was willing to heal, and in fact, he did. This was a miracle. It was not a medical healing. I like to make that distinction. It's not like the man went for uh, a course of antibiotics and uh, surgeries to get his, uh, himself repaired. He was healed instantly by the Creator who is the designer of the human body. We had a very interesting conversation at our table today involving one of our uh, guests or visitors in the church, and uh, we're talking about health and, and medical issues and cancer and how to solve this cancer scourge that is on our race and uh, we're relating to one another how it's tough for us to try to fix uh, these kinds of problems because we didn't design the machine to begin with. God did. But here you have the designer and the creator of the machine, the master engineer with a capital E who made this, who is able to fix it like that with his divine power, and he did that. He gave the man some post-healing instructions. He said, keep your mouth quiet about this, and then go and follow the prescriptions of Leviticus 14 to go to the priest to give a testimony to them, make the offerings that are prescribed, and, uh, and be going on your way that way. So uh, he did not obey the first 
command. He went about and told everything that had been done. We see that in Luke chapter one and verse uh, forty, or sorry, Mark chapter one and verse forty-five. And uh, and we don't know if he uh, followed the other. I presume that he did, but we don't know that uh, from uh, what I can see. He went his way, and uh, he was supposed to give a testimony to them. The Lord then, what, what what's happening here? Jesus is not doing these miracles to impress the crowd uh, or to wow them or, as some have said, to do power evangelism. You know, if he just does this, he'll, he'll talk them into believing in him. Uh, this does authenticate his divine role as messenger of God um, because, you know, in the Old Testament, for example, if somebody came along and said they, you know, claimed to be a messenger of God, what did they have to do? Well, make prophecies, and the prophecies came to pass, that sort of thing. So this was clearly uh, an authenticatory uh, kind of uh, thing that he was doing. And really, this is unprecedented in world history. We had certain seasons of miracles, Moses being the prime example with the exodus from, uh, from Egypt. But then you had uh, Elijah and Elisha, you know, quite a few miracles done there. But this is totally different. I mean, this is wall-to-wall healings, exorcisms, and all this. And this is what Matthew is, is trying to get our attention on, that this was, you know, the, the situation was just, A, it was dire in Israel. And in this time in history, I mean, you know, blindness was rampant, uh, demon possession because the nation had given themselves over to idolatry and so on over the course of history, uh, you have illnesses that today would be, you know, we'd be able to, to manage. And then, of course, the illnesses that can't be fixed or managed. You have all of that combined, and the Lord goes around healing. And we see in this section what he, in fact, was doing. And so we move on to a second example of the Lord's healing power, not just to cleanse a leper, but also to raise someone who is dreadfully sick from his sick bed and maybe his deathbed even. And we read this in verse 5. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Now again, we see a deep desire for a healing here. Somebody really wants God to, or Christ to do something to heal a very sick person, somebody who, what does he say? I mean, this is pretty bad. This is really bad. He's lying at home, paralyzed, and dreadfully tormented. Now, what puts somebody in a state like that? I don't know. I mean, I do know some conditions that could do that. You could have had a massive stroke and be tormented and be paralyzed, be unable to move, You could have some terrible disease, some bacterial infection that's doing this to you or something. It sounds like he he was very much suffering. Now, when the centurion says he's dreadfully tormented, I want you to put that in context. You know, this is not like, you know, know, what's your pain level on a scale of 1 to 10 or 0 to 10, you know, and uh, you know, you say, oh, it's pretty bad. It's a, it's a five, you know. This is not a five. <laughs> this is over the top of the chart. 
And the reason I, I'm saying this is because these people, we don't, we don't know anything about suffering. I mean, we do, but we don't. You know, some, there, there's some times in which we have, you know, most of the time we have no pain or very little pain. Other times when we have an acute issue that comes up, we have severe pain for a short amount of time. And then the doctor comes along and sticks you with something and gives you some relief, hopefully, from the pain. These people knew suffering. They knew suffering. They knew death. They knew illness. They knew the utter feeling of helplessness. There's no 911. There's no ambulance. There's no emergency room. There's simply misery. So they, these people just in that culture knew that stuff. But this guy says he's dreadfully tormented dreadfully tormented in a very, very bad way. He had pain on a 10 out of 10 on the scale. He was unable to move. The situation was unbearable to look at, much less to be in. Have you had a situation like that? You can't, I, you can't, I cannot look at my child in that state for another second. He's going to the hospital right now. Or You know what I'm saying? You can't even look at it. <laughs> Think about the poor child, you know, groaning in agony from some infection that he has, an earache or something like that. And it's, it's dreadful. Dreadful. Unbearable. But notice that the human suffering that we have is not lost on the Lord. He knows. He knows the miserable situation in which we find ourselves. In fact, he came and partook of that misery on this earth. The centurion was pleading for his servant, help, please help. Um, but, and, and, you know, we don't know for sure all the man's motivations. You might say, well, did he have enough faith? Um, just like we don't know if the leper was perfectly motivated. I mean, obviously he wanted to be healed. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be healed if you're sick. It's normal to want to be healed and to trust God for that. We cannot criticize, however, this centurion at this point, knowing what we know. It's okay for him to come and ask for healing. To humble himself and ask a Jew, an itinerant Jewish minister, here a Roman soldier of position and place in society, to ask for healing. That's something. There is a big assumption here underlying this, and that is, the man comes assuming that Jesus could, in fact, heal his servant. We said last time that somewhat humorous to us, because we're reading it and not experiencing it, you know, illustration of Naaman who comes to the king of Israel or sends a messenger to a king and says, hey, heal me of my... I can't heal you of your leprosy. You're just trying to cause trouble, aren't you? I know what you're doing. You're trying to start a war here. And uh, the leper did that sort of thing to Jesus. Here the centurion does this to to uh, the Lord. There's another fact as well underlying this, namely that the centurion, think of this, the centurion cared for his servant. He cared for his servant. This was no master-slave relationship where the slave was mere property and could be just dispensed. Oh, well, he's gone. Pick, get the next guy and put him in the place of service. He was not a heartless Roman soldier whose slaves were property that could be disposed of without consequence. This guy is a good master 
relatively speaking. We have to keep in mind that he was also a man of his time. You might say, well, why did he have servants in the first place? Well, many people have servants in the first place. In that time, that was just how it was. In fact, you might be uh, surprised to know that there are even English-speaking missionaries in India who have servants in their home in these days. Now, they're paid, you know, but very low-wage servants to help them, and it becomes a matter of a uh, question of kind of efficiency. Is it better for us to spend all the time doing the cleaning, which you need to do all the time because everything's dusty and the washing and the cooking and all that, or you can pay a few dollars for a servant to do that for you, and then they go and they go to the next house and they do that, and they're totally happy to do it, brother, totally happy to do it. There's no minimum wage law over there, I guess. I mean, that's what I'm saying. You have to put yourself in the mindset of the, the people of the time. This was not wrong. They didn't see it as wrong. They saw it as just how things were. So we shouldn't criticize the centurion uh, at that level. Well, when Jesus came, uh, offered to come and heal the servant, the centurion did not want him to come into his home. Let's see this. It says, uh, Jesus res- responded to him, I will come and heal him. Verse 8, the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. Now that is a remarkable statement. That is a remarkable statement. I mean, that's just like somebody, that's the, I mean, this is a, what I'm going to say is a poor illustration or a very cut down illustration, but somebody who's got a family member in the hospital, they call me on the phone and Normally it is, Pastor, can you visit in the hospital? But perhaps a person calls and takes this approach and says, Pastor, you don't have to go visit. Just pray. Just pray for them. Because we trust God will answer prayer. And oftentimes we do do that, but I don't think we think of it quite this way. We just think, well, that's what we do, you know. Now, this man had the kind of faith that is just off the charts He said in verse 9, I'm also a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard that, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, there it is, as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed from that same hour. The centurion did not want Jesus to come into his home. How does he express that? He says, I am not worthy that you should come. I mean, not only does this man have the desire for his servant to be healed, a care for his servant's well-being, he has faith that the Lord can do this, but he also has humility. Here's a big, you know, big shot Roman centurion. He's humble, though. Isn't that interesting? He's, he's just a, a, a humble guy. I'm, I'm not worthy, Lord. Now, for sure that was true. He was humble enough to know that. 
Perhaps this man was not too far from the kingdom of God. When the centurion suggested, or what the centurion suggested, was that Jesus simply speak a word and it would be done. He had such confidence in the power and authority of Jesus that he figured Jesus could simply speak. Again, true. His reference point was the authority that he himself had. And if you're a Roman, high up Roman army guy, it's true that when you said something, some subordinates better snap too, right? <laughs> Obey. Uh, orders from headquarters. Your wish is my command, right? That is, that is just exactly what his model was in his mind. And can you imagine a little man who is in charge of a hundred soldiers or whatever has that kind of authority? And he says, you too, Jesus, have that kind of authority. But imagine Jesus when he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I mean, magnitudes, orders of magnitude, more authority, more power than what this Roman centurion had to his men. He was able to speak, and it was done by those under him. This reminds us that God did something similar. Let me uh, turn my Bible and uh, over to the Psalms, and I want to share with you a verse that I thought of when I was reading this. Psalm 33, starting in verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear before the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. If you just say the word, it will be done. That is the faith of the centurion. May we have at least as much faith in the kind of faith that he had as children of God. This utter confidence in Jesus is called faith, trust. Jesus can do it. And, and he says, look, this kind of faith I haven't even seen in Israel. The people who were to have the faith didn't have it. They had lost a handle on that faith. They had received it from their forefathers way back, but they couldn't grasp a hold of it, and it passed them by. He found a Gentile Roman soldier had such faith. Someone in the Jewish culture almost as bad as a Samaritan. You know what I mean? The Jews would look at a, a, a Samaritan or a tax collector, Roman soldier occupying power. You know, they would think of them as dirty people. Uh, Paul, you know, sent to the Gentiles. The Jewish people couldn't stand that, the mention of a Gentile. But here we have this a man who was hated in the eyes of the Jews but had more faith than they. This prompted Jesus then to explain something that's going to happen in the future for which we can thank God. In verse 11, when he says, many Gentiles will come into the kingdom of God. 
In verse 11, I say to you that many will come from east and west. What he's saying is, not from Israel, but from the east and the west, from every direction of the compass, they're going to come and they're going to sit down with the forefathers, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in the kingdom of heaven. Those guys will be in the kingdom. We will sit with them and enjoy a wonderful feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and probably many times thereafter, enjoying together a meal of fellowship, perfect fellowship with the Old Testament saints and the angels and the New Testament saints, tribulation saints, kingdom saints, wonderful thing that will be. The Israelites would be thrown out into everlasting punishment, those ones that did not exercise faith in the Lord. And so this is a pre, uh, preview of Gentile salvation. I thank God for Gentile salvation. As far as I know, most all of us are in that category of Gentiles, and we have the opportunity to be saved. Christ is a light not only to Israel, but also to the Gentiles. It's too small of a thing that he should be that light just to the nation of Israel, but God made him a light unto the nations, to the goyim of which we are part, and we thank God for that. Now, please be careful when you read this phrase, the sons of the kingdom. Uh, Where is this? Verse number 12. Does, don't, don't think of this phrase as, okay, sons of the kingdom. That must mean people who end up in the kingdom. doesn't mean that. They will not. Being cast into outer darkness is a clear statement of divine wrath and judgment against their unbelief. They're not saved people. Here the word son does not mean born again. It means someone associated with and who is called to be part of the kingdom. Someone who's described or characterized by being connected to the kingdom. The kingdom comes through the nation of Israel, and they were supposed to be. This is the odd thing. Why is it that the children of Israel were so, I don't know, what's the word, intransigent, so difficult that they refused their Messiah, and they refused their God in years past and since? The word son here does not mean saved. It means someone who is associated with and who is called to be and supposed to be in the kingdom, but is not here because of a lack of faith. They were physical sons of Abraham, but not spiritual sons of Abraham. You know the difference, right? Physical sons of Abraham are not all spiritual sons of Abraham because they don't share the faith of their forefather, Abraham. Paul said it in similar terms in Romans when he said, not all who are of Israel are true Israel. He's not saying there that Gentiles become Jews. He's saying that there are some Jewish people who don't really belong to the vine or to the tree, to the root, because they don't partake through faith of the root and fatness of that olive tree. Hebrews 3.19 speaks of them, and later on, or earlier on rather, of us. Hebrews 3.19 says, So we see that they, that is Israel, at the time of the Exodus, could not enter in to the promised land because of what? 
unbelief. Go back to verse 14, though. It says, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. What's the evidence of being a partaker of Christ? Persevering faith is the simple answer to that question. As difficult as it may be for some to accept, a faith which peters out, I wonder where that came from, uh, a faith which fails uh, is not true faith. Okay? Peter, by the way, himself, his faith was revived, wasn't it? When, you're, when you are restored, Jesus said, you, 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 you strengthen your brethren. But in this case, in Hebrews, he's saying, look, you're, we hold that confidence. You know, if we hold that confidence steadfast to the end, then we are indeed partakers of Christ. That's the real kind of litmus test or, or whatever you want to call it. Jesus closed the interaction with a command to the centurion to go. Your request has been done. The servant was healed. Torment was gone. Paralysis was gone. Pain was gone. Whatever the underlying cause was is gone. The centurion was right that Jesus could speak a word and it would be done. And it was done. And so, second example here of healing. In fact, actually in chapter 4, there are a bunch of uh, healings that Jesus did as well. But these are called out in particular. Jesus has power not not only over bacterial infections, leprosy, Hansen's disease, and other grievous illnesses, but things like fevers. Look at the next one, verse 14. When Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. So he touched her hand and the fever left her, and she arose and served them. Talk about your fever breaking. He just broke it. (laughs) He finished it. Peter had a mother-in-law. That means that he had a wife who has a mom. That means the apostles were not celibate because even the chief apostle was not. I called him the chief apostle in quotes in my notes. He didn't, he didn't see himself that way. He was one of the apostles. But this reminds us also that Old Testament priests were not celibate either. You, you know where I'm going with this, why I'm saying this. It's a, just a little kind of you know, overlooked fact that he has a mother-in-law and this tells us that he was married and the Old Testament priests were also to be married. Remember the high priest? He was to be married, but not to take a certain women to be wife. He had to take a virgin of the nation. No, not divorced or defiled or whatever. Um, and many of the priests, probably most of them were married. By the way, how would you expect in Old Testament Israel to um, carry on the lineage of Levi if you didn't have husbands having wives, having baby Levites so that they could grow up to be uh, you know, doing their temple work. Now, of course, today the work of a pastor is not a hereditary work, but uh, those who would claim that there's a celibacy in the priesthood need to deal with the fact that never in the Bible is there any priesthood that is celibate, never an apostleship that is uh, celibate either. Okay, it's not also not wise for most pastors to be celibate. 
It's required that they rule their own households well, and so therefore they must have a household to rule. How do you get a household to rule other than to have a family? Therefore, typically, pastors will be married, not unmarried. There's a whole bunch of other things related to that, but I'm not going to get into all of it. Um, I, I do remind you, though, that uh, marriage is a very blessed and precious and good thing. Uh, I've related this before, I think, but you can think of several purposes of marriage. One is an, an intimacy in marriage, I'm thinking of specifically. One is procreation, obviously. But that's not the only reason for intimacy with your spouse. There's pleasure, and there's also protection. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it's better to marry than to what? Burn with passion. And so marriage is an outlet for that passion that we have naturally as humans. God has put that into us because he figured out a very genius way to get men and women to want to be together so they would create children to propagate to the next generation. So pretty smart on his part, but uh, that causes us to have to keep that within the proper confines. And so marriage, thus very important for procreation, for pleasure, for, uh, for protection, among other things. I mean, one of the big things is companionship, just plain old companionship because life can be kind of a lonely uh, experiment if you are in it by yourself. And so I've experienced that myself years past before Naomi came into my home. But I'm glad that she is there and our boys uh, as well. So Peter had a mother-in-law. She was sick with a fever. She may have had a short-term fever due to a bacterial or, or viral infection. She may have been sick with cancer or some other serious disease. In any case, she was lying down, which means it's probably a pretty bad fever. You know, if you have a low-grade fever, you feel crummy and you can kind of do stuff, you know. But, I mean, if you're burning up, I mean, you're just miserable, right? Oh, it's terrible. So she was in that state, evidently, and it seems like it was quite a bad fever. The Lord touched the woman's hand in order to heal her. He did the same to the leper, remember. It says he touched him and he was healed. The power of Christ to be able to touch and not have, this is the moral power, to not have uncleanness transfer to him, to not have disease transfer. I mean, you don't just go around like, you know, touch a leper and, and uh, I mean, certainly wash your hands after that, right? The Lord touched him and he was perfectly healed, just like that. Amazing. He touched her hand and... Uh, raised her to health. Now, in, in the other miracle with the centurion servant, he didn't touch because he was at a distance, right? So he spoke the word, and that accomplished the miracle. The healing of, the, of Peter's mother-in-law was so thorough and so quick that immediately she got up, and it's as if she didn't have any fever at all. I mean, after you've had a fever for a little while, you don't feel like just popping up out of bed and saying, oh, yeah, I'm ready to go, you know. It takes a little while to recover, doesn't it? But she began to play the role of hostess, likely helping her daughter prepare dinner for the special guests that had just arrived at their home. What an amazing healing and a full recovery. 
we read over this, and it's two verses. But can you imagine the stories that were told by those family members years down the road and generations even? Grandma was sick in bed, and Jesus came and touched her, and she was healed like that. Very significant to this family to have this happen, just like these other things as well. A man with leprosy and a man who is a servant being on the point of death probably, and, and then Jesus, or Peter rather, mother-in-law, and Jesus heals her. Impactful, just in two verses of Scripture. Stated so matter-of-factly and without sensationalism that it was just like, well, that's what Jesus does. He walked in, healed, let's move on to the next thing. Who does this? Who does this? What a man is this? And the disciples had the same experience when they saw that he stood up in the boat and said, peace be still, to the raging waves, and they were stilled immediately, and they said, who is this? Who is this? This is somebody that's way beyond what we can understand or do. A couple more minutes here tonight. We'll just start into the section on casting out of demons I wanted to get to the discipleship section, but uh, it doesn't look like that's going to happen tonight. I don't want to rush unnecessarily. Casting out demons now in 8, 16, and 17. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Have you ever seen somebody that you think may be demon-possessed? I have, um, but I can't be sure because the Scripture doesn't give us a notification about how to be sure if somebody is demon-possessed. We don't have diagnostic information to be able to do that, but sometimes there are people who just are over-the-top problems. Uh, They just can't control themselves or... You know, some, I think sometimes this is, you know, out on the streets you'll see this. People that uh, are involved in uh, the occult sometimes get into this. People who, uh, and they may not seem like they're totally abnormal people either. We don't know. There could be some very respectable-looking people that have sold themselves to do the will of the devil. It's very scary to think about. It seems that Satan and his demons were highly active in ancient Israel and in maybe throughout the world. And I think we don't quite appreciate this because we live in a post, well, we live in a Christianized society in which demon work is less prevalent than it was in some of these places. Now, there are places where that's not the the case. I mean, nations which have refused the Christian testimony and witness and have lived, existed for thousands of years apart from that, there's got to be dark stuff going on there, friends. And in some of these nations, uh, you know, people are so out of control uh, that there has to be mechanisms in place for God to restrain that. And how does he do that? Well, he does it with dictatorial governments. 
with people, with men whose hands are quick to shed blood of those who are rising up and causing problems. Unfortunate uh, though it is, there are many cultures, and ours is quickly becoming such a culture where people simply are not fit, not able to control themselves, not able to be a self-governing people because they're so out of control, wild, senseless, and that ends in a society which has people that seem to be possessed by demons. You've probably pondered this with some of the most uh, gruesome and uh, famous criminals that have existed, mass murderers, serial killers, that you just wonder how can somebody be so cold and have seemingly no conscience. Many people came to Jesus in the evening after the evening meal, apparently, seeking help from this mysterious man who could heal. They had heard of his miracles and wanted to receive some benefit from them, so they brought to him everybody they could find who needed help. The text tells us that evil spirits were removed with a word. Of course, you can't touch a spirit or grab a hold of it and yank it out of a person's body, but Jesus' word can do that to remove an evil spirit from somebody. And we do affirm, by the way, that evil spirits can dwell in and influence people. They cannot be indwelling a believer, so don't think that. Yeah. But they can pester believers from the outside, and they can also indwell unbelievers on the inside. And the only solution to that for us today, how, do, how would we cast out demons? We don't do like the Pentecostals and Charismatics and all that. We share the gospel, and we trust the power of God to remove that evil influence and to implant a heart of faith into the person. And we, we don't expect that every time we do that, sharing the gospel, that it's going to work, okay? Yeah, it doesn't work like that. It's not a formula. He healed uh, these people. Uh, healing, uh, by the way, is kind of a generic term, can be casting out spirits or, or also healing those who are sick, various illnesses. Sorry, i got to turn this off. <laughs> God, I left my phone on. That's a good illustration. Everybody should turn your phone ringer off, including the pastor. Um, so he removed those demons. He healed those people who were sick. Uh, probably people with long-term illnesses uh, made up the majority of these cases. Because people with short-term illnesses, there wouldn't be as many of those necessarily. So here you have people who are brought on, on a litter, carried, uh, people who are hobbling along, people who... Uh, have some kind of problem, like the woman who was bent over and couldn't straighten up herself and all of that. He healed all kinds of people like this. And boy, it seems like there must have been a lot of people that were in this case. Now Matthew offers us, the, uh, the apostle here, offers us a quotation from Isaiah the prophet. And it's from Isaiah 53, verse number 4. And I'll just turn there. You don't have to, but you can if you wish. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. I should preach through this uh, passage sometime from the perspective when it was that it's looking at. It's actually a retrospective written as a prophecy. So here the nation of Israel is going to be looking back and they are going to be saying the words of Isaiah 53 and saying, look, who believed our report? To whom, of the arm of, who, to whom was the arm of the Lord revealed? Look, we esteemed him as stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. We hid our faces from him. We, we put him on a cross and we killed him. That's what Peter told the people in the book of Acts in chapter 2 and 3 and 4 and 5. And the Israelites at the time when God pours out a spirit of supplication at the opening of the kingdom will mourn as one mourns for an only son in the fact that they will recognize the one whom they pierced. That's what Isaiah 53 is doing. It's recounting that but telling it in a a kind of retrospective fashion as a prophecy. Anyway, Matthew recites this verse. He He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. These words, he says, were fulfilled in Jesus' ministry. Now, this is misused or abused as the basis for physical healing ministries today, either purported miraculous healings or medical missions whose ministry philosophy is off Bible center. The problem with a simplistic interpretation of this verse is that it hurries over matters that are at the heart of the atonement and rushes to an endpoint that is a secondary result of Christ's work, not a primary result of that work. This is what I mean. Christ's death on the cross was for sinners and their sin. That sin, imputed sin, inherited sin, acts of sin committed or omitted, caused not only separation from God spiritually, but also death physically. Physical consequences, including sickness and disease. Christ's work on the cross solves all of that range of problems. The physical problems, the spiritual problems, the death and disease, the spiritual separation from God. All the effects of sin in the life of God's people will be eventually dispatched because of what Christ did. Jesus' miracles demonstrate that he has the power to do that. He was the man who could take away sins. How do you know that? Well, he proved it by taking away all these diseases. Again, an authenticating kind of thing. It never happened like this before, that somebody walks into Israel and left and right is healing people so that disease is practically wiped out in the nation. It's a um, foreshadowing, by the way, of what the kingdom will be like. A foreshadowing that in the kingdom, if someone is sick, they can visit the king. Perhaps his emissaries, his people who reign with him and be able to be healed. Medical technology may be greatly increased, but it may just be Miraculous healings, I don't know exactly how that's going to work. But the work of Christ accounts for all of that, takes care of all of the effects of sin and death and disease. And eventually in heaven, all these things will be eliminated. So is there healing in the atonement, as many people ask? The answer is certainly yes, but not immediately. That's the key. In this pre-cross situation, the Lord was prefiguring what his kingdom would look like, a massive increase in physical well-being and authenticating that he was a messenger, the good news of that kingdom. Think of 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree 
that we might live for righteousness. This is, that's how he bore our infirmities and sicknesses, our griefs and sorrows. All of them are caused by sin, and the sin underlying those griefs and sorrows is what he bore on the cross. And because he bore them on the cross, he didn't promise to take away the effects of sin immediately, but he, he did take away the condemnation of sin, and eventually he will take away the physical consequences of sin as well. Spiritual separation from God is immediately solved at regeneration. Whenever you're reconciled to God and saved, then that spiritual separation is solved. But physical separation of the body and spirit, that is death, is solved at the resurrection. Death itself is finished off when the kingdom ends and a new heaven and new earth begin and illness and disease goes the way of death into the junkyard of past history. That's what our Lord does, and that's what Matthew means by saying he took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. That is, he took the sins that caused those things. He was about to pay for them at this time before the cross and dealt with them truly. That is a blessing to know that. And I hope it's a good example for you and those of you online as to how to deal with this passage and connect all the dots together so that you don't get into this false idea that, well, Christ died, that means that I can be healed from my cancer. Maybe he will heal you from your cancer by taking you to heaven, and then you will be healed from your cancer. But there's no promise that he's going to do that immediately in this life. Well, let's pray as we close tonight. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here this evening. We thank you for your loving kindness, your grace, and your mercy. Thank you for these passages that we've read about healing the leper, the centurion's servant, Peter's mother-in-law, and many people unnamed in verses 16 and 17 who were cleansed or had demons cast out. And now, Father, as we close, may we go with the kind of faith and desire to serve you as these ones had, uh, the leper and the centurion himself. Lord, I don't I wish, I pray, I hope that none of us walk in an unfaithful manner to you or in a manner that ignores your power. We see you have that power. We know that you can work it in different ways in our lives. Perhaps in some struggles that we're having, may your power be evident in us in Jesus' name. Amen.